Glory to Jesus Christ, glory forever. Okay, welcome back everybody to our study of the Ladder of Divine Ascent by St. John Climacus. And tonight we are picking up with uh, the third step, uh, the last of the three steps on the break with the world. And if you remember, he had, uh, he had written about uh, renunciation, detachment, and exile. And so we're at the last page or so of the of the writing on exile, which again is sort of separating from all things as John has described it, in order to become inseparable from God. So to gradually develop a kind of simplicity of life, a greater and greater focus upon God, and in order that we might remain inseparable from him in our prayer life, to be attentive to him in everything that we do. And so whether it's living the monastic life or living in the world, you know, the goal for us would be a constant remembrance of God. Uh, in our day-to-day -day life from moment to moment. And, uh, and so this is where John is picking up. We're on paragraph 24 on page 66. He begins by writing, but by much labor and effort, a good and stable character is developed in us. But what is achieved with great labor can be lost in a single moment. For evil conversation corrupteth good habits being at once worldly and disorderly. So stable character is something that's developed only over the course of time to uproot the passions, to order our desires toward God, to remove ourselves from those things that stir the passions or can corrupt the heart. This takes great labor over the course of time, fasting, prayer, uh, study of the Father's scriptures. And so, uh, this is something to be protected and guarded as precious because it can be lost in an, an instant when we become negligent in our prayer life or begin to expose ourselves to, to things that we, we know will stir the passions again. Uh, we can become deluded into thinking that somehow we are free uh, from the influence of the evil one or free from the influence of temptation. Uh, for a long period of time, the evil one can wait and be patient as we talked about before to those moments where we think that we are no longer affected by certain passions and so uh, begin to lose that watchfulness of heart that is so important for us and so open our minds and our hearts to all different kinds of thoughts temptations uh, ideas and fantasies He goes on to say, the man who associates with people of the world or approaches them after his renunciation will certainly either fall into their traps or will defile his heart by thinking about them. Or if he is not defiled himself, yet by condemning those who are defiled, he himself will be defiled. So the, the fathers never let us off easily. You know, it's tell us in one breath, that, of course, if we begin to immerse ourselves in the things of the world, especially the things that would corrupt the mind and the heart, uh, we are going to be drawn in that dire direction. We're not impervious. And uh, unless we rely upon the grace of God, we are slowly going to become subject to those things, defiled by them. And, uh, and yet, even if we are not defiled, by exposing ourselves to them, we can find ourselves in the position of pride, of judging others because they are. Uh, and so looking at others in a harsh way, rather than with a tender heart and with sympathy, understanding again that sin in a, in a sense is his own punishment and that 
those who find themselves in the grip, grip of it are not to be judged, but rather we are to, to look at them in a prayerful way or uh, in what measure we can be supportive, whether it's through prayer or through our own efforts, but never, never to judge harshly, even if we do see things and behaviors that are very clear in our own eyes. And again, that's hard in our day uh, because there is this kind of morbid delight that we've often talked about in people's falls or in the things that we see in the world. So sitting back and criticizing them. Uh, yeah, what is it that we do uh, in, in the face of such things? Uh, do we fast and pray when we encounter sin within the world as well as within ourselves? Or when we see evil, is our first response to turn to God? Or is it to sit back and comment on it? And uh, I think this is, you know, one of the downfalls of social media. There's a lot that's good about it, but I think it can foster this kind of groupthink and also this kind of harshness in the judgment of what we see going on in the world. And uh, once that ball gets rolling, it becomes very difficult to, to stop its motion. So any final thoughts on this paragraph? Because he's going to move into a little discussion on dreams, but anything on this final paragraph in this section? Okay. Well, if not now, uh, perhaps later, don't be afraid to, to bring it up. So concerning dreams that beginners have, it is impossible to hide the fact that our mind, which is the organ of knowledge, is extremely imperfect and full of all kinds of ignorance. The palate distinguishes different foods, the hearing discerns thoughts, the sun reveals the weakness of the eyes, and words betray a soul's ignorance. But the law of love is an incentive to attempt things that are beyond our capacity. And so I think, but I do not dogmatize, that after a chapter on exile, or rather in this very chapter, something should be inserted about dreams, so that we may not be in the dark concerning this trickery of our wily foes. So people often ask me that, well, you've studied psychoanalysis and they look at dreams all the time. So what do you, you know, do you run into any problems here with John and what he's saying? And my thought is absolutely not. I think what John is saying is spot on that uh, again, there's a tendency uh, to look at dreams. You know, they can be uh, odd, they could be absurd, they could be disturbing, they can be titillating, they could be funny. And so we have this tendency to talk about them and what their meaning might be. And, and when it becomes tied to religious things, perhaps even more so, if we have religious mindset sensibilities, that it wouldn't be surprising that our dreams might take on that quality as well. And so John is saying, we have to be very careful. Our mind is in a certain state when we are sleeping and when we are dreaming in particular. And so we have to be as careful about these thoughts that come when the mind is still active, but the body is at rest. Okay. A dream, he says, is a movement of the mind while the body is at rest. A fantasy is an illusion of the eyes when the intellect is asleep. A fantasy is an ecstasy of the mind when the body is awake. A fantasy is a vision of something which does not exist in reality. 
So he draws a distinction here for us that I think is pretty important. So a dream is a movement of the mind while the body is at rest. So we're sleeping, but the mind is still active. And uh, it is often uh, connecting to various things throughout the course of our day or underlying conflicts that we might experience within us. And so not necessarily under our control. So if we, something takes place in a dream, one should not worry that there's any sin in it, that the will is not involved, we're not controlling our, our dreams. Uh, but nonetheless, our minds can be very active, uh, even though we are sleeping. But he makes a distinction here between dream and fantasy, which I think is important for us uh, to acknowledge as well, especially in our day when there are so many things that give themselves over to fantasy, the illusion of the eyes when the intellect is asleep. So the noose, the eye of the heart, the eye of the soul, which is to be purified through the ascetic life, that, that which allows us to comprehend uh, divine things, the things of God or the truth about ourselves uh, in a deeper way, to contemplate the deeper reality of things as well as the things of God. And so when the intellect, he says, is asleep, when the noose has been darkened, then the fantasy begins to emerge. So it's a kind of illusion of the mind, an ecstasy of the mind while the body is still awake. So we don't have the excuse at that point that we're sleeping. It's something that arises that uh, a thought, an idea, an image will take place in our mind. And what will take place is that we will often linger in them. And those fantasies, those images, those ideas will become linked together uh, and become a kind of storyline, a narrative within our mind. And we, if we aren't careful, we can find ourselves following that fantasy for a long period of time, especially as he says, if the intellect or the noose has been darkened, we can find ourselves in a waking dream, a fantasy, where we're allowing the mind just to take us wherever we want it to take us. And it's interesting, I think when one begins to practice the Jesus prayer or seeking to become more watchful of the mind, the heart, of our thoughts, uh, we can begin to see how easily we drift into thoughts that at first might be benign, uh, but then our mind can be driven by our passions or the things that stimulate the passions to begin to form fantasies, images in our mind, connect the images again into a fantasy, to a kind of living or active fantasy. And so this is something to be guarded, guarded against, uh, because I think when we allow our minds to act in this way, we then become, in a sense, responsible for the dreams on, on uh, a deeper level. So even though there's no sin in a particular dream, we might be responsible for what's going on within our minds and our hearts throughout the course of the day. So if during the day, the intellect is allowed to go to sleep, the noose is sort of darkened, and our mind is flitting from thought to thought, image to image, fantasies develop, we allow that to take place without engaging in the spiritual battle, then we are forming our mind in our heart to have these memories of these things within the unconscious. And so that can be 
our dreams can be reflective in a, in a sense of the state of our soul. And so if we are having you know, dreams over and over again, as I, I mentioned, I don't want people to become uh, scrupulous about this or filled with anxiety about it. But sometimes our dreams are reflective of whether or not there's a kind of watchfulness of heart that we have. And we do have a responsibility of how we've formed and shaped our mind and heart over the course of the years. And so if we've been immersed in things, images, ideas, think about it, everything that we experience on the internet, television, the movies, music, all those things are held within the mind. And one of the things I think I've mentioned before that Sigmund Freud said, in the unconscious, there is no sense of time. So those things, even though they've happened in a distant past, can emerge very quickly. And when the body is asleep, they emerge. And sometimes our defense mechanisms snap into action because some of the things that we're thinking about are so disturbing to the mind that the mind takes hold of them and recreates them. That's why we get these crazy dreams that come up because our mind is still in the defense mechanisms that we still have in place, shape them so they're not quite so disturbing because we'd probably be disturbed if we realize really what, you know, in our baser uh, actions would want to do or our baser thoughts would want to do. And so often our mind will even filter things so the dreams come out in a, in a certain way, at least the ones that we remember. So I know that's a, a lot to, to think about and a lot to throw at you there, but I think what he's trying to say is that in the spiritual life, we are, are not to give ourselves over to these things. We have enough trouble in our day, day our waking fantasies, our daydreaming, we have enough to fight about with there. We don't need then to be following along the thoughts that arise within our dreams, which are often confusing and a jumble. And uh, when we think of something like uh, even psychoanalysis, uh, you know, we know that dreams were very important, especially in the rise of psychoanalysis, that uh, it becomes part of the internal emotional narrative of an individual. So if a person is in analysis and he's on the couch, that it becomes part of one's free association. And so if a dream of the prior night comes to mind, one would bring that forward within the context, the frame of the analytic work. And within that frame of the analytic work, the analyst can listen along with you and see how that fits into a narrative that perhaps has developed over the course of years. That's how the understanding of a dream would emerge, not out of the context of one's lived life, not out of the context of this analytic therapeutic work. In fact, Freud called it a kind of wild analysis. When someone tells another person a dream and the person begins to say, oh, I know exactly what that means. This means this, this, and this, and you're thinking about this or want this. And so all of a sudden they become a kind of therapeutic prophet and begin to try to read people's minds through it. And Freud said, that's nonsense. And he said, there are some symbols that are common to us as human beings in terms of their meaning for us. But he said, outside of the context of that very specific frame of the analytic work, we want to avoid this kind of wild analysis and interpreting them 
or following them. And so this is where we sort of see the connection here for, between Freud and, and John Climacus. Climacus is saying the same, that you know, given our spiritual life and the spiritual battle that we are engaged in, we don't want to engage in this kind of wild analysis or give any undue attention to our dreams. And so to let them pass by, to set them aside as they come to mind, not let them stir the emotion or the thoughts during the day. And so I'll let John explain the rest of it here, but what, what he says and how he talks about how the evil one can make use of these kinds of thoughts, I think is very helpful. Any thoughts or comments so far? Okay. The reason we have decided to speak about dreams here is obvious. When we leave our homes and relatives for the Lord's sake and sell ourselves into exile for the love of God, then the demons try to disturb us with dreams, representing to us our relatives are either grieving or dying or held captive for our sake and are destitute. But he who believes in dreams is like a person running after his own shadow and trying to catch it. So the demon can, you know, knowing and seeing things within the world can then use this to draw us away and from the path that God has set us upon and fill us with a kind of anxiety. So you can see enough of what's going on within the world to plant the thought before us that then makes us think, ah, I had this in my dream. It means this. My parents must be hurting or they must be destitute. I need to run and take, take care of them and, uh, and make use of this in, in such a way that uh, I think the image here is wonderful, like a person running after his own shadow and trying to catch it. And so our trying to figure out our dreams the, the, the devil can make us uh, like a dog chasing its own tail. We'll be spinning around, going nowhere, trying to, to catch something that we will never catch hold of. And even within psychoanalysis, you know, dreams often have multiple meanings, not just one meaning. And so even there, there's a great caution within that particular frame of saying this is the exact meaning of a particular dream. It might be one aspect of it. And sometimes all the characters in the dream are us, you know, that they are some aspect of who we are or what we're struggling with. And so it can be very difficult to, to unpack that. And if we try to do it in an indiscriminate way, is the way John was just talking about, then we are going to waste a lot of time and energy. And worse than that, we can be led astray. The demons of vainglory prophesy in dreams. Being unscrupulous, they guess the future and foretell it to us. When these visions come true, we are amazed and we are elated with the thought that we are already near the gift of foreknowledge. A demon is often a prophet to those who believe him, but he is always a liar to those who despise him. So the demons, all they have to do is you know, be patient and seeing what they see can put things before the mind. And so guess at the future, foretell certain aspects of the future to get us thinking that somehow we are being given the gift of foreknowledge, that we have a kind of clarity of heart 
purity of heart that we can sort of foresee with what's coming, both in our own life and in the life of others. And so it's how he puts it again is beautiful. You know, uh, the, the devil becomes a prophet for those who, believes, who believe in his interpretation of dreams. Whereas for the person who despises the evil one and despises dreams, then is going to see the devil for, for who he is, a liar. One who will use every part of our lives as human beings to try to pull, pull us off the path to God. Being a spirit, he sees what is happening in the lower air and noticing that someone is dying, he foretells it through dreams to the more light-minded. But the demons know nothing about the future from foreknowledge, for if they did, then the fortune tellers would be able to foretell our death. And so this is also the danger of going to uh, fortune tellers, you know, palm readers, all that kind of stuff. You'd think that would be an infrequent kind of thing. But I've heard stories of Catholic school teachers on their, you know, lunch breaks going out, to, you know, uh, to get their palms read or their, you know, what do they call that? Their, you know, future told by uh, someone who's a fortune teller. And, uh, and so it's a pretty common thing within our world to follow along this trap, to want to see uh, the future, to be able to foretell it. And there's a kind of lack of trust in the providence of God to want to know those things ahead of time, you know, as it were, to prepare for them, to control its attempt to control our destiny or reality as it comes, comes to us, rather than living in the moment. And that can be a very tempting thing. Fear, anxiety, uncertainty can drive us to do that and at times in the most ridiculous of ways. So there are a couple of comments here. Uh, Aquinas says that our imagination can be seen by demons and good angels as, as originally as they are both superb intellectual beings since they are formed in our intelligence. Is that where spiritual warfare takes place in the dreams? Logismoi. Well, logismoi would be more of an Eastern way of describing thoughts and uh, you know, the fathers will tell us that they can't mind read or control us, but they can see patterns in behavior, what we talk about, how we engage others, how we even talk about the spiritual life. And so the, the more that we do that, and the, the more that we sort of put forward, uh, especially our internal life, the more that we make ourselves vulnerable to the attack of, of the demons. And so knowing what is exactly in our imagination, uh, I don't know, I'd have to go back and read Aquinas about that and see exactly what he's saying. But uh, to know exactly, I would say, the, I don't find that in the fathers. I think the way that he would be able to read it is by the things that we do and the things that we say and the things that we are exposing ourselves to. You know, it's pretty clear where our imagination uh, what our imagination is most attracted to, what we're exposing ourselves to, and what we're looking at day after day. And I think that's open and clear to what the evil one could see and use against us. 
And then again, at Franciscan U, a lot of students supposedly had visions. Some students seemed very proud of the fact that they've seen angels, seen the future, et cetera, always seemed like a red flag to me. And it should be a red flag. And I think this is why John is putting it forward to us, even spending the time uh, talking about dreams because uh, the devil can appear to us and he'll say this in the next paragraph as an angel of light. And so we should be very cautious, in fact, rejecting of such things. To reject such a vision is to lose nothing in the spiritual life. Uh, but to reject it, in fact, is to gain something, which is humility, but also the protecting of the mind and the heart. Uh, I often use Philip Neri as uh, a, a model here. and He would often say, if the Blessed Virgin appears to you uh, in a vision, spit on her. And if she disappears, you know it's the evil one. And if it is Mary, she's not going to be angry at you for putting that vision to the test. And uh, one would say one would go even further than that. I think, uh, you know, he also said, you know, those who desire visions do not know what they desire, that it was always a very painful thing and often is a painful thing for saints who experience them because they know the temptation to pride uh, that can come in their wake. And, uh, and so it's often something that they would wish they could rid themselves of. And so, but, you know, I think for all of us, the best path is always to be guarded, to watch the mind and the heart. Sue and Mark. Um, yeah, Father, I'm, I have a, I knew someone, an older woman who had one of her sons who was not leading a very good life. And she was woken up in the middle of the night and was kind of told she needed to go to this place and she would find her son there and she needed to get him right away or something bad would happen. And she kind of flew out of bed, didn't even get dressed. And he was exactly at that spot. Now, is that, could that be like um, the guardian angels, not like a dream? So it's something a little different. And I wondered about that and how it related to um, the Franciscan news story, and then whether it would have anything to deal with the vainglory and prophecy in dreams. Now, this woman didn't mean, she didn't think she had any ability to foretell the future. She really just looked at it as uh, the Holy Spirit, the guardian angels, saving her son who might have had something very okay. negative happen to him, and he was not in a good spiritual state. Sure. I understand. Yeah, I think this is where maybe we would look, as you had mentioned, to one's guardian angels, those who protect us and um, in the spiritual battle. And I, I would think that would be more the case. Uh, but even there, I think, you know, the evil one could use something like that. You know, it's mothers are often very attuned to what's going on with their children you know, and when they're in distress. And I think we would even have to be careful there in terms of putting that to the test or assuming something. One can rejoice and thank God for the protection of the child, uh, but not necessarily spiritualize it uh, in, in such a way that we are, th then perhaps open ourselves up to wanting it at other times or, you know, wanting God to, you know, to show us all these things to protect us in, in these sort of extraordinary, extraordinary ways. 
So always best to, to be very cautious. And let us go on with what with, with John says here, just to let him finish his final paragraphs. And then we'll talk a little bit more about it. Let's see, where did I leave off here? The uh, 29, that's right. The demons often transform themselves into angels of light and take the form of martyrs and make it appear to us during sleep that we are in communication with them. Then when we wake up, they plunge us into unholy joy and conceit. But you can detect their deceit by this very fact. For angels reveals torments, judgments, separations. And when we wake up, we find that we are trembling and sad. As soon as we begin to believe the demons in dreams, then they make sport of us. And when we are awake too, he who believes in dreams is completely inexperienced, but he who distrusts all dreams is a wise man. Only believe dreams that warn you of torments and judgments. But if despair afflicts you, then such dreams are also from demons. This is the third step, which is equal in number to the Trinity. He who has reached it, let him not look to the right hand nor to the left. So, you know, in the scriptures, we find stories of dreams, Joseph, you know, being one of them uh, about Mary's conception. And, uh, but I think, again, this, you know, God can act in certain moments uh, and enter into people's lives. And so we can acknowledge that it is not impossible for God to do that. And we see a kind of Joseph kind of purity of heart, you know, struggling to embrace the will of God, something that was beyond reason and intellect and had suffered, was already suffering for it. What to do about Mary? Because if he were to uh, expose her or divorce her, he would subject her to trial or even death, to be stoned to death, you know, if it would be assumed that she'd conceived out of wedlock. And uh, one of my most favorite paintings is by, I think it's George Latour, where Joseph has the scriptures open in his lap and he's fallen asleep and the angel is touching his shoulders. It's as if he had been immersing himself in the word of God, seeking to grasp or find the path forward as to what God would want him to do in these circumstances. And yet we can see that and acknowledge that the, the wisdom of the saints tell us, beware, you know, that they can make sport of us in and through it if we begin to, to follow these things without putting them to the test. Okay, Angela. Yes, um, the, the line distrust every dream. Um, it, it, what, what, what's happened with me since I've joined this group and been reading these texts is that I've been having dreams um, that involve perhaps my negative feelings towards people in my waking time mm -hmm. and in the dream are playing out scenarios where I'm showing them much more love than I would in my daily life. Mm -hmm. And I wake up quite delighted um, to recall those dreams. And I just wondered if you had any comments on that. Well, you know, I think, let, let me put it this way. If, if one experiences a certain consolation from God, that what we would want to take 
hold of is the faith that that produces within the heart and not to take hold of how it came to us in the sense of desiring or wanting that to be reproduced. That the safest path for us is say in a dream when you experience this and uh, you know that your mind and heart are raised to how you're treating others you know that there's a kind of consolation that you know there's a truth that is uh that you become aware of that all right i i need to be treating others in a different fashion but to avoid what john describes here then as delighting in that to the extent that we want to reproduce it or become overly excited about it because this is what he says the demons will work in this very subtle way then for us to not only take joy in the consolation and take hold of the faith that that produces, but then be longing for that to be re reproduced within other dreams and sort of disappointed when they when it isn't or when we have a dream that is just the opposite of that, us beating somebody up or treating them harshly. Uh, and so uh, I think the, the safest path is to take again hold of the faith that this would produce in God that we are called to love and to give ourselves in love and so we acknowledge that truth but, but not necessarily acknowledge it as coming through the dream so much i think in a, in a, to be honest with you we have to set aside the again because an attachment can develop to it dreams can be very fascinating to us that something emerges from the unconscious at night so it's more than likely that it's in your prayer life and in your daily life and your study of the fathers that you're coming to see these truths that it's already within the mind and the heart and you find yourself dreaming about it because that's where your thoughts are going through the day and that's what we would want and indeed the dream might be a manifestation of that but nonetheless you want to take hold of the truth there and the, the deeper faith that leads you to studying the fathers, studying the scriptures, praying and treating others with tenderness is the path that I'm called to, but not again, trying to re reproduce that. Okay. That, that's a lovely response for okay. me. Thank you. Okay. Okay. Rachel, did I see your hand up? Up, down, up, down. Keep it up there. Okay, here it is. Every time I've read this, it has confused me a bit since it can be dangerous to speak about the interior life on account of the demons who will try to trick us at every moment. How are we supposed to approach confession and the revealing of thoughts to one's confessors and spiritual director? Even here, it seems to me, one has to be very discerning and careful. And yes, in the Evergatinos, we've talked about this uh, uh, in, good measure, I think, that certainly within the context of the sacrament, special graces are provided. And, uh, but even there, uh, we have to be careful in terms of how things are articulated in terms of the amount of detail. And so we heard in the Evergatinos saying that, you know, confessors are never to press for more detail than what is needed. And, uh, and those who are going to confession not to offer more then what gives the confessor an understanding of the particular sin that one is struggling with or is committed? 
And because those thoughts or images can stir within our own minds and hearts, the very same things that we've struggled with and sort of open us up to them or also cause the, the confessor to have particular images or ideas within the mind. And so, and moving beyond that, I think in general, talking about the spiritual life in an indiscriminate fashion, you know, I, I know witnessing is a, a big thing within, you know, among Protestant and particular evangelicals, but also within Catholic circles, you know, getting up and talking about one's spiritual life or spiritual experience, the experience of conversion. And on some level that can be a fruitful thing to bear witness to the, the uh, power of faith in one's life and what it's meant to, to a person. But again, one has to be careful in terms of the detail that we go into, because again, if that is shared too freely, or especially those things that were sources of vulnerability, of grave sin for us, and we open ourselves up, there's a vulnerability there before everyone in the group, but I think also a vulnerability within ourselves, again, to hold those things in mind that God has freed us from. And so to talk about them over and over again, it becomes sort of worrisome to me because I think even in modern uh, you know, spiritual conferences, uh, it takes place a lot where uh, someone will talk about themselves or their own spiritual journey. And I think there, are, there can be specific dangers to that, either pride in sort of thinking about what one has come through, what one has struggled with. And, you know, even if one is saying that it's by the grace of God, that there can be this elevated sense of self-esteem in the eyes of others. And uh, the evil one can play upon that. And so, you know, those who are talking about the spiritual life have to be attentive to what's going on internally in, in that regard, not, not sharing too much detail. And again, this, I think in our day and age, this is something that is difficult. You know, it's we, people use Facebook as a confessional and it's not a confessional and you shouldn't be confessing all of your sins on Facebook. And, uh, you know, or, you know, even the whole thing with Ash tag, you know, on, on Ash Wednesday, you know, people take a photograph of themselves with ashes smeared on their head which does not make sense to me. I, I know there's this sense of corporate, you know, pride in being Catholic and knowing who every, you know, all the Catholics are on campus if you're on a university campus or at work, but it still makes no sense, especially when the gospel says, you know, when you're fasting, wash your face, don't let other people know that you're fasting. And, uh, and so, you know, there is always this temptation to, to pride where self-esteem can creep in and lead us to a place where eventually we will, will falter. And even if it is through our own pride and, and acknowledging before others our own particular practices, then immediately we'll find ourselves attacked in that area. And because we've weakened ourselves because of our pride in it. So hu humility is always going to gravitate towards silence you know, of guarding the speech. Okay. Sue and Mark, you have another comment? I do. Um, I have a question. 
I really understand, um, and I'm sorry for not typing. It probably wouldn't work out very well for me, but um, I understand what you're saying when you're talking about not giving your direct, your confessor, you're going to confession, not more information than he really needs to know for all the reasons that you gave. Yet, in the Evergatinos and um, further on in this book, even as he goes into obedience and he talks about um, the thief who repented and other stories that are in here, they're telling you to tell your um, spiritual director every single thought that you have. And, and the, in the repentant thief, it's, it's what they make him do further on here, just a couple pages. Okay. okay. It's, it's like, whoa. Right. Well, I think that's, you know, again, why we would want to read the fathers in their fullest context. Uh, in the same Evergatinos, which you mentioned, uh, we are currently reading the hypothesis about not revealing those thoughts indiscriminately, that only to uh, a spiritual elder who has the gift of discernment and will deal with those thoughts prudently and helpfully and uh, offer a kind of spiritual balm and means to healing. And in the story that you bring up in John that comes up in the step on obedience, again, it's within the context of a monastery, but under the guidance of a superior who is you know, a very holy individual and can see the fruit of that, not only for the, the thief, but for his entire community, which he gets into in the context of that story, that pressing the thief as he does in terms of his repentance, he becomes an example for the rest of the community who might be taking lightly the confession of their own faults and their sins. But again, that is a rarity in terms of the wisdom the, the prudence and the discernment of that particular elder. So we don't want to sort of pick things out in the same way we do with scriptures as a kind of proof text, or we, we want to read things in their broader context. And I think, again, this is the value of reading something verbatim, uh, like the latter of divine ascent and reading it slowly, because we can hear something like this in this step on uh, you know, not revealing one's thoughts or not following one's dreams, and then, uh, you know, come to have these questions about what comes up in uh, further stories. And uh, so, again, I think this is where we need to be patient and sort of look at the teachings of the fathers as a whole, not one particular step or a paragraph, but what the body of their writing uh, teaches us and what their lives, more importantly, teach us. Okay, good question. But I think, uh, again, it sort of emphasizes why we're doing things in the way that we are. Thank you. Okay. There was one uh, comment here, and then we'll move on. Uh, Father David, continuing my previous thought, I was always thinking that demons can only have an insight into our inner life based on our behavior. But lately I've read... Aquinas, uh, the action of angels on men, whether an angel can change a man's imagination with him stating, I answer that both a good and a bad angel by their own natural power can move the human imagination. And then explaining further the thought, the angel changes the imagination, not indeed by the impression of an imagination form in no way previously received from the senses. 
I was perplexed if you would have any insight on this from your perspective. Uh, I don't really think he's diverging from what John is saying here. Uh, the answer is both good and bad angel by their own natural power can move the human imagination. Uh, but it's based upon uh, the impression it's not indeed by the impression of an imaginative form in no way previously received from the senses. So, you know, it's already what's active within the mind and the heart of the individual and what is being observed that then they can intervene. You know, the guardian angel to warn, uh, to guard, to protect, and the demons to make use of what they, they see us doing with our imagination or exposing ourselves to, what path it leads us upon. Again, you know, I think what John said in a paragraph or so before this, that they can even be good guessers, that the, the percentage of times that they would be right would be very high because they can watch every one of our actions and hear every one of our words over the course of time and see when we do pray and don't pray and all the things that would be an influence to us. And so their ability to provoke something within our imagination would be very powerful, but it's another thing to read the mind. Okay, so that brings us to the end of step three and we'll enter into uh, step four, which is on obedience. Any final thoughts or comments though, as we step forward from this one. Okay, now prepare yourself. Uh, obedience is a very long step and very challenging. And again, we want to follow the flow of John's thoughts and uh, he'll define it again for us in a very kind of detailed way. And then he'll make use of various stories uh, to uh, sort of illustrate for us how it's enacted in a person's life. And obedience isn't talked about much in our own day. And sometimes when it is talked about, it's talked about incorrectly. Uh, there can be a kind of slavishness or infantilizing that takes place. Uh, it can be done in a distorted way and even harmful way. And uh, again, we in the Abercatinos, we came uh, upon this where a command is given by an elder only when it is asked for by the directee who prostrates himself and willingly takes that upon himself and not to be done indiscriminately and that the spiritual elder has a personal responsibility then in helping that individual fulfill the command. And so even in the fathers, we don't find this kind of infantilizing way of obedience or brutalizing of individuals of controlling them. Uh, obedience can all, often be used that way, or for a person really to set aside their own responsibility uh, and try to pass it off onto another. So this will be an important step for us to listen to. Our treatise now appropriately touches upon warriors and athletes of Christ. As the flower precedes the fruit, so exile, either of body or will, always precedes obedience. And with the help of these two virtues, the holy soul steadily ascends to heaven as upon golden wings. And perhaps it was about this that he who had received the Holy Spirit sang, who will give me wings like a dove? 
uh, will fly by activity and be at rest by divine vision, vision and humility. So obedience we will see in the writings of the fathers, not just John, is this very quick and powerful and sure way toward holiness. It's the roughest, most difficult path, but it's also the shortest path for us. And this is why it's valued so. But let us not fail, if you agree, to describe clearly in our treatise the weapons of these brave warriors, how they hold the shield of faith in God and their trainer, and with it they ward off, so to speak, every thought of unbelief and change of place, how they constantly raise the drawn sword of the spirit and slay every wish of their own that approaches them. How clad in the iron armor of meekness and patience, they avert every insult and injury and missile. And for a helmet of salvation, they have their superior protection through prayer, their superior's protection through prayer. And they do not stand with their feet together for one is stretched out in service and the other is immovable in prayer. So you could probably spend the rest of this week just on this one paragraph and I think unpacking it, so many beautiful things. Uh, the image of warfare and of warriors, I think is something that is worth regaining. And I don't know why we've gravitated away from that, uh, especially because it is scriptural and, you know, uh, and the reality is, is that we are involved in a spiritual battle and spiritual warfare. And so to acknowledge that there is a need to battle against the demons, uh, as well as against our own tendencies, but to also have the weapons that, uh, that, the, that have been revealed to us, primarily in and through the life of Christ, but then also in the faithful disciples throughout the centuries, what they have used to engage in this battle. And uh, obedience in particular is one that has the power to slay the demons uh, because it conforms us to Christ in a very powerful way. We become confessors of the faith in a very powerful way when we live a life of obedience because we are imitating Christ who was obedient to his father, whose hunger, whose desire was to do the will of the father. And so the obedient soul is seeking to imitate Christ and to conform himself to the mind of Christ. And there, this armor for, protects us in some really extraordinary ways from every insult and injury, any missile. Uh, it's sort of an, an interesting cho choice of words that they used here to translate. It would be interesting to go back to find out what the word is, but anything that a projectile that the evil ones or through the influence of evil ones, others or life might throw at us, insult, uh, any injury that somebody might inflict upon us, that this spirit of obedience uh, is something that protects us and allows us to remain unmoved. Our natural tendency is fight or flight. And so we will want to respond to an attack, a verbal attack, a verbal projectile, and we'll, we want to catch it and throw it back and maybe throw more back and uh, this spirit of obedience, which, you know, leads us to uh, through our formation under a superior, 
leads us to set aside judgment, opinion, will freely to the one that we've uh, entered under, whose charge we've entered onto, under in obedience, over the course of time forms the mind and heart in such a way that allows us to gain a kind of freedom, peace, meekness within the face of the hostilities of the world or those uh, in, who, who in some way attack us and verbally or otherwise. Uh, the reference to having our, our feet not together, that it, it gives us solid footing because obedience leads us to service, that we do what is asked of us by God or by our superior who's acting in the place of God. And we have the other foot rooted in prayer where we receive the grace of God to, to carry that out and to carry that out swiftly. And uh, so we aren't easily knocked over in the spiritual battle in that regard, that we are fulfilling the, the demands of charity uh, or the demands of obedience if we're under uh, the superior while being rooted in what gives us the grace to be faithful to those demands. Uh, I've mentioned here before that often in monasteries, they'll refer to their daily work as their obedience. They're carrying out their obedience for the day. And I've always thought that that's a wonderful way of looking at things, that we are conforming ourselves to Christ. We're imitating him in even the most uh, uh, kind of lowly kinds of work throughout the course of the day that we might have to uh, engage in. Uh, or that aren't very fulfilling, that we can still fulfill those under a spirit of obedience, whether we live in a world or a monastery. Uh, someone who's married and has a family is engaging in their work out of love uh, for family, the care of their family, uh, but to, to, to also to give an honest day's wage. But one can love God in and through doing that work well of making use of the particular gifts that he's given us for, for his glory, not to simply to satisfy our own ego. So to see one's daily labor as obedience, I think is an extraordinary way of looking at one's life. So there's a lot in that paragraph. Anybody have any comments or thoughts on what's been said so far? Okay. In paragraph three, he, he makes an effort to define it with a little bit more clarity for us. Obedience is absolute renunciation of our own life, clearly expressed in our bodily actions. Or conversely, obedience is the mortification of the limbs while the mind remains alive. Obedience is unquestioning movement, voluntary death, a life free of curiosity, carefree danger, unprepared defense before God, fearlessness of death, a safe voyage, a sleeper's progress. Obedience is the tomb of the will and the resurrection of humility. The corpse does not argue or reason as to what is good or what seems to be bad, for he who has devoutly put the soul of a novice to death will answer for everything. Obedience is an abandonment of discernment and a wealth of discernment. So a lot, again, here for us to unpack. And some of it might be jarring, I think. A lot of it might be jarring to our sensibilities. The idea of this unquestioning movement or mortification of the limbs, uh, 
of freedom from curiosity. Uh, so to place oneself in obedience uh, is to mortify oneself, to mortify the will, judgment, and opinion uh, to one's superior. And again, the desire here is to conform oneself to the meekness and the humility of Christ. Uh, again, it's not meant to infantilize, but it's to, it's to place oneself under the judgment of the other, especially when one is in the position of formation. So to trust in the wisdom and the experience of one superior. And so uh, towards the end of the paragraph, he says very clearly, for he who has devoutly put the soul of a novice to death will answer for everything. Obedience is the abandonment of discernment and a wealth of discernment. So the novice is embracing the higher discernment and learning from the higher discernment of the elder by putting to death his own will and his own judgment and opinion. Uh, with this trust that the elder takes up that task with the understanding that he's responsible absolutely for the one who's in his care. And so the discernment on the part of a superior of a community or a novice master should be uh, something that has been formed over the course of, of years, that those who are put in those positions of being superior, novice director, uh, seminary formation should be those who have lived life of great obedience, uh, who have engaged in the spiritual life in a very deep way, whose minds and hearts have been formed in this fashion. And again, you know, I think we, we live in a time of a kind of a spiritual void or spiritual spiritualities that are devoid of meaning and substance. And they're devoid of meaning and substance because they neglect simply just about everything that we talk about in all the readings that we read. And uh, uh, I've been struck by uh, stories that I've been reading in, uh, from the Catholic News Agency uh, about uh, individuals that people are putting forward for canonization. And you know, I'm, I make no judgment there. The person may be determined by the church as living heroic, uh, you know, an heroically virtuous life. And that might be confirmed by all the ways that the church has set in place to con confirm it. But often it is that those on a natural level who have done something heroic, or endured something very painful and had faith. Uh, but it's, it's never, you know, we're moving towards something where, again, it's a, maybe the height of natural virtue or where there is faith present, but it's not necessarily something that is representative of sanctity as what we see within the, the tradition of the church itself. And, uh, and I think part of the reason for doing this is to present the spiritual path as a way that is more attractive or appealing to modern sensibilities or in particular appealing to the young. And I understand that, you know, every generation has to engage uh, people where they are and uh, in the face of all the influences but not to the point of sacrificing the, the truths of the spiritual life 
uh, or the beauty of, of what our, our faith puts before us. Christ is the most beautiful of individuals. His life is the most beautiful of lives. And if presented in its fullness and lived, uh, if we lived a life of grace in its fullness, this would, should be able to speak to our generation in the most powerful way without our having to contrive uh, you know, new ways of, of holiness that are outside of, of really the wisdom of the spiritual tradition. And to invent, you know, the modern day saint, if you will. And, uh, and so, you know, I cautiously say this, uh, because uh, I, I don't want to diminish, you know, and certainly anybody who's you know, recently been canonized or anything along those lines, but I've, I've been noticing this more and more, and I'm not sure why it's arising other than out of this sense, uh, and we've been doing this for the last 50 or 60 years of trying to appeal, to make the faith appealing or attractive on a, a level of, you know, sensibility, sentimentality, and, you know, certainly the effective level uh, of who we are as human beings has to be spoken to uh, and is spoken to through the life of faith, but it's only one part of us and it's not necessarily going to allow us to endure to the end, which we are called to by Christ. And uh, for that to take place, we have to give our lives over to Christ fully and to the action of his grace and to foster the virtues that we see within him, to put on the mind of Christ. And again, to conform ourselves and our way of loving to that of the cross and what we see in the Holy Eucharist. And so obedience is not something that's going to typically come up in a lot of conversation about the spiritual life. And uh, where it should be, you know, here it's John's fourth step right after either, you know, the break from the world, it's the first thing he puts before our eyes and our minds to reflect upon. Because in a sense, this makes us, again, I've mentioned this before, confessors of the faith. We are imitating Christ in this profound way who sought above all to be obedient to the will of his heavenly father. And how are we to form the mind and the heart uh, unless we imitate him in this regard. And that is true in whatever state of, of life we find ourselves. Again, you know, husbands and wives, parents have to be, there's a kind of obedience to their state and they have to be engaging in the spiritual life in such a way that while they have that one foot in service set forward to the care of those uh, of their children and of their family, they also have to have the other foot firmly planted in prayer in order to find the strength and the grace to live the life. And, uh, and so we'll do well, and we've come to the end of our time. I'll, we have a few questions up here yet, but uh, I think we're not going to rush through this step. I think it's so important for us as we go through the rest of the ladder. Anthony. Obedience is a very important role in daily work. 
right? As, crass, uh, as craftsmen is obedient to the methods of the trade and masters, a government worker and obedient to the laws you shall in regard to enforcement, especially when he does not want to enforce the law. A day laborer is obedient to the payer. Obedience is especially essential in a medieval guild system. All life is master apprentice. Very good point. And I think we've circled around this in talking about asceticism in general, that we see asceticism too, as well as what you're describing here with obedience as part of day-to-day -day life. In every field of life, a person has to exercise themselves in that particular role uh, in order that they might perfect it. So the athlete has to practice lift weights, study play, you know, their plays, you know, uh, engage in this sport over the course of years. Academics, musicians, everyone has to engage in a kind of ascetical life. And we will hold it up and admire it. And same thing with obedience here, as you describe in the daily work, the master-apprentice relationship where one is following the, the, the knowledge and the skill of one who's been engaged in that practice over the course of decades. And uh, again, you know, I think in a culture, you know, where we, we've moved away from this in education in so many ways, I like sort of the English tutor system better than what we have with our you know, classrooms and the way, the way that we study and the way that we test, there's just something that doesn't sit right with me because it sort of lacks this personal quality and formative aspect. And so we're not forming, especially the movement away from the liberal arts, we're not forming in philosophy, we're not forming the minds and the hearts of individuals. Ashley Cashel. Sorry, I didn't type fast enough before, but I wanted to touch on what you were saying a paragraph ago about obedience and humility. I think you've said before that at the heart of the word obedience is meaning to hear, ob audio. It's right, that humility being tied to obedience is prone to silence. I was thinking about something I heard a couple of years back from my pastor that the word silent is comprised of the same letters which spell the words listen and enlist. So it just brought to mind that in humble silence of our prayer, we listen obedience for his voice so that he can enlist us in a particular task he has set before us, that we might be caught up in God's purpose. Wow, you guys are awesome. Every, every comment and question, absolutely. You know, the obedience, uh, you know, abodrate, to, to hear, to listen, to be docile, to be teachable you know, is really at the heart of this. And so to be able to listen to the voice of another trains us ultimately to listen more deeply to the, to the will of God. And certainly silence uh, aids us in that purpose. It allows us to listen to God and allow him to speak the word he desires us to hear in the depths of our heart. And until we've been silenced our hearts, what we are going to hear is the noise of the world or our own judgment and opinion on things. It's often a dangerous thing because we can be right in so many different ways about our judgment of a certain set of circumstances. 
We can be right on the money and everything we see is true and we can still be wrong. We can still do the wrong thing. What is not in accord with the will of God and what is, what is going to bring us to sanctification. So we might see very well a certain set of circumstances and make this quick judgment about it if we're astute and but still uh, be shocked when we find out we did not see the half of it. That what was going behind this on behind behind the scenes or in that person's heart or what they were experiencing in their life, because we really were not listening that we did not have this obedient spirit that has taught us to do so. And we've come to trust too much in our own judgments. This is not a fashionable virtue. And uh, even for the most willing of readers, and I think we sort of have to realize that as we enter into it. Okay. All right. So we're at 839 and wonderful group. Thanks for all the, the comments again. And we'll back in next time. Again, always don't hesitate to send, send uh, an email or text about anything that comes to mind about what we've read. Okay. Feel free to pass on the link to anyone who wants to join. Uh, it's the same from week to week, and uh, unless we will run into trouble. Uh, but a lot of times I'll get people emailing me that they've lost the link. But So just remember, if you lose it, go back and find the last one. You'll be fine. Okay. So as always, let's close with the Our Father. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Mm -hmm. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy, be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace. Thanks be to God. Thank you all. Have a wonderful Thank week. Thank you so much.